What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. My name is Kason. Today we are beginning our series on Metal Gear Solid. Yep. Metal Gear Solid is not the first game in the Metal Gear series, but it is very likely the first Metal Gear you played. <laughs> Probably. Well, the other two weren't even really released in North America. No, except not for until, like, way later. the original Metal Gear, which came out on NES, but oh. that port Kojima had nothing to do with, and there are oh, some key that's right. differences with it. That's right. So that's it is right. possible some people might have played Metal Gear on the NES. The second mm. game never came out uh, in North America. Mm. Well, at, at the time it was released anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's been ported since then to other things. But anyway, uh, in preparation for talking about Metal Gear Solid, which is the game most people know, um, we are going to, because some people were asking about this, how, you know, it's not the first part of the timeline of the story. We will be, in talking about the dev history for this episode, uh, going over and summarizing the events of Metal Gear 1 and Metal Gear 2. And we will go up through the briefing uh, that you get through on the start screen menu of Metal Gear Solid. Um, mm. We will probably not get into any of the actual game today. Because there's a lot to get through. So okay. next time we will start with Snake's underwater infiltration uh, and go from there. But today we're just going to be talking about dev history and Metal Gear 1 and 2 and the briefing of this mission for Metal Gear Solid. Cool. So, um, Where do you want to start? Well, I like to start with key developers. Let's get to know who made this Perfect. game and the roles that they played. Um, I was looking through this. There's not a lot of names that mm. I want to bring up this time. Okay. The team was actually pretty small, even given well, the time period. Right. It took them longer to make this. It took them quite a bit of time considering the time period. It was like a two and a half, three year dev cycle, something like yes. that. Um, and Kojima is well known, I guess, for wanting to keep his teams small. Yes. And in general anyways. Right. So. Yeah, so there was about 20 people who worked on 20. Metal Gear Solid in total. And that was not a big number if you're going back into the 80s. It was <laughs> kind of a small number moving into the 3D era. Exactly. Where, for what they were doing, yeah. it was a smaller team. Once you got into the yeah. PlayStation and the N64, you'd see teams get up to 50 or even 100 plus people yep. on big AAA titles. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and so 20 was was pretty small, but the game is pretty small. You were talking to me before we started about yeah, how surprised shocked. you were at how short it is. I was shocked, yeah. Yeah. It's um, 10 hours, but possibly less. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a short game. It's so a pretty short game. We won't have too many episodes for this series. I'm, th mm. I'm thinking maybe four tops. Okay. Um, but anyway, there's, there's there's a few key names I want to focus on here. Of course, Hideo Kojima, yeah, Hideo. who is the director of the game, but also the writer of the story and kind of concept. He's and, yeah. very much like an auteur yes. type of creator oh, yes. who wants cr he wants control over every single yes, detail yes, yes, yes. of what he's doing. Yep. We'll get into that with some quotes here in a little bit. So he's the writer. Uh, there, another writer credited here is Tomokazu Fukushima. Fukushima, yeah. Um, who was also a design assistant uh, for the setting and things like that. Mm. Um, then you have the uh, artist, like the, the lead art director, yeah. Yoji Shinkawa. Um, his art has become really, really uh, 
distinctive sort of iconic to the Metal Gear series. Like you can yeah. kind of see in this artwork here. Yes. Like that's his style of drawing characters. Yeah, very um, interesting. <clears throat> very kind of noir-y, right? Very yeah. mysterious. Uh, really sharp contrasts, like yeah. hard black to white, like really Almost hard. Almost like a military camo, if you right. think about it, right? Just having right. the, the blobby nature, but it's really sharp contrast. Yeah. And he's also gone on to do like Zone of Enders, which um, hmm. Kojima also worked on, um, even Death Stranding. So he's kind of oh, stuck really? with Kojima oh, nice. over the years, even after leaving Konami. Cool. Um, you have uh, the sound director. I really want to bring up this name because the sound design in this game, I don't think we've talked about sound design on any of the podcasts we've done so far. Not in, extensively, for not, sure. The sound design of this game is remarkably good. It's, it is very good. It's fantastic. It's yeah, yeah. Not only just in like its use, right? Because, and this is kind of a typical, you know, all, all sound designers know this. Usually they're the most invisible part of a production. Right, yeah, yeah. If, if they're doing their job, then no one notices. You don't notice yes, the work. Yes. <laughs> there's, yeah, yeah. there's very few cases where it's not only just they did so well, they also introduced very unique sounds. Yeah, that's the weirdest part. Where you recognize like that from anywhere. Like the exclamation point, the eh, yes. that sound, yeah. So like Star Wars is a great example of that. Oh, yeah. There's iconic sounds from that where you know yeah. that's a Star Wars sound like effect. Like TIE Fighters it. and, yeah. This lasers. game is full of it. It is, From, yeah. like you said, the exclamation, yeah, ur yeah. urgent sort of like, oh no, danger yeah, sound yeah. effect to even just the menu sound effects. Yeah. Um, there's just, it, the sound design is am amazing. Anyway, yeah, very good. Uh, Kazuki Mura, Muraoka, Muraoka, Muraoka yeah. is the sound director for this game. Um, <clears throat> and then we've got uh, assistant director Yoshikazu Matsuhama. So just a few names there. Oh, also Motosada Mori. He was a military advisor, like a weapons specialist. Ah. Yeah, they actually did. They did a lot of research before yes. doing this game with like mm. some tactical teams and military equipment and stuff. Yeah, very very cool. Like, yeah, they really got into it with this game. Yeah, so those are kind of the main names that we'll be talking about today. Um, cool. Well, let's start with uh, Hideo Kojima. Yeah. What What do you know of Hideo Kojima? <laughs> uh, Hideo Kojima. I know he's fascinating. Yes. Fascinating person. Yeah. Um, He's very much an auteur, absolutely. Mm. Uh, Death Stranding and Metal Gear is really all I really know about him. Yeah. Um, but he had done some other work before that. Uh, like in the like mid-90s. Oh, I can't remember what the game is called. Police Knots? Yeah, Police Knots. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And it was a bit of like a, it was almost also like a kind of a film noir type yeah. game. You but know? like a science fiction. Yes, very yeah. Um, cyberpunk, yeah. more or less. Yeah. Yeah, and he's like, he's, uh, he's fascinating, but... Other than that, I can't say I know much about him. You know what's funny about Police Knots? Uh, Meryl, the character from Metal Gear Solid, yeah. was a character in that game No way, as well. same name? Same name. Ooh. Meryl Silverberg? Meryl Silverberg, I think oh, her okay. name is. Uh -huh. Anyway, she was retooled and redesigned, so it's not like the same person in-universe. Okay. You know? It's not like Police Knots and Metal Gear Solid share the same universe. <laughs> yeah. But they just took that character from that game and just kind of reused the character for this game as well. Nice. So it's, it's very like 1980s. It's got a very 1980s vibe of what, yeah. like what they thought a future type thing would be back then, you know? Yeah, or, or, or like a 1980s, you're talking about Metal Gear, right? Or Police Knots? Uh, both. Both, yes. 
But because Metal Gear is less in the future, though. Police Knots is more futurey. Yeah. Right. But even Metal Gear, I feel like, is almost an '80s view of like the doomsday yes. around like turn of the century sort of thing yeah, yeah, scenarios. Like yes, Metal Gear yes. Two, which we'll get into in a little bit, is all about uh, the world has run out of uh, petroleum, out of fuel, and so like. Yeah. Sky, skyrocketing prices and the economy is all messed up because of it. Mm -hmm. And there's a scientist who creates like a new fuel source and so he gets kidnapped by of the course. bad guys. And of course. So anyways, we'll get oh, into A lot that. of like uh, conspiracy type stuff going on yes. here too. Yeah, it's fascinating. So let's talk a little about Kojima's early life. I actually, as I was reading this, uh, reading some of his interviews and stuff where he talked about his early life, um, a lot of it really resonated with me. It felt very similar to yeah. some experiences that I had. So his family was, I think his dad was a, was a pharmacist or a doctor or something okay. like that. And so they, they had money, they, you know, pretty well to do, but they moved around a lot. Hmm. Um, so they moved from Tokyo to Osaka when ah. he was like uh, middle school, like junior high age or yeah, probably around there. Um, and he talked about how this kind of abrupt change led him to kind of, you know, stay inside more, became a little bit more reserved. He spent a lot of time watching television, uh, building okay. figurines and yes. things like that, right? And uh, his family started a tradition at this time where every night they would watch a film together. Um, yeah, and also <laughs> like TV shows like Bewitched yeah, yeah. and things like that, uh -huh. or I Love Lucy or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and they watched a, especially a lot of foreign Stuff, yeah. European cinema, yeah. westerns, uh, you know, horror films. Well, what's great? Stuff from outside of Japan. They'd watch that stuff, and then they'd talk about it. Yes, they'd like they discuss would it, analyze break it, it down. as a family. Yeah, yeah that, isn't that crazy? <laughs> I, I, that's probably that's not really the family I grew up in, but no, not at all. <laughs> and and especially the part where he talks about how they didn't limit the types of films that he was allowed to yeah. watch. He says they even. Uh, or they wouldn't just show me kids' films. Oh, I I'd didn't even know that. watch the sex scenes. So, like, as a well, kid. Well, in Japan, around your parents, like, that's yeah. weird, man. That's weird. <laughs> really interesting family dynamic. And he yeah. had a, a, a good relationship, particularly with his father, yeah. in discussing film. Hmm. So, he grew up in a home where discussing film was a part of literally everyday life. Wow. He was not allowed to that's go fun. to bed until he finished the movie with the family. <laughs> Which is the opposite oh of what like most families oh, are absolutely. like. It's like, oh, yeah. it's bedtime, get out of here, like stop whatever you're doing. Oh, totally. So, really interesting family that he grew up in. Hmm. Um, around the age of 10, his parents began to encourage him to go see films in the cinema, like by himself. Okay. They'd like, give him money and be when like, go, yeah, go to the movies, All watch right. this movie. I, but you better come back and tell me about it. Yeah. And tell me about how you felt and tell me about what it was about. Man, they treated him like an adult. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So he, he says, they would give me money to go to the cinema by myself. I was allowed to go on the condition that I came home and discussed the movie with them afterwards. I had to buy the film brochure and bring it back with me. Then we would talk about the movie's themes and direction and what I felt about it. Wow. And his, his dad was a, a doctor? Like a yeah, pharmacist? Like, like I think something. a pharmacist, but... Wow. Yeah. I wonder if his dad was um, had some regrets about his own life and not pursuing art and wanted to kind of it's a, ensure that his kid had some type of life yeah. that included that, you know? It's a really good question. That's speculation, but I, I that's didn't, strange behavior for uh, someone in, like that. In the article that I was reading, he didn't talk too much about it other mm. than to say that, like, 
he felt really lonely because his dad died yeah. when he was 13. Oh, there you go. So he felt like he sort of mm. lost that yeah. person who he could, you know, talk about movies with. I mean, he still yeah. had his mother and everything, but that was like a big part of his childhood growing oh, up and the whole family dynamic that was lost with that. Um, hmm. He also talks about how he was always coming up with stories in his head all the time. He's always thinking about stories, to, you know, making up stories. So he says, I was constantly making up stories about the things around me. I'd find myself laughing or crying at seemingly random things, and people wouldn't understand why. Reminds me of the movie Taxi Driver. <laughs> yeah. In Japan, there are storm channels on either side of main roads. Uh, there are so many times mm -hmm. where I'd fall into these ditches because I was lost in stories I, as I was walking along. It's still dangerous for me to drive. I've driven into the gate outside my house numerous times. Even now while we're talking, I find my, uh, my mind wandering if I'm not careful. So, so ADHD for sure. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for sure, definitely. Yeah. But he's, but that's he's just lucky that they didn't just put him on drugs and tell him to go fit in anyways. Yeah. That it was just like he was kind of allowed to be that. Yeah, and, they encouraged and he's it. he's developed into this incredibly creative person. Yeah. So he started taking an interest, particularly in filmmaking, around that time they moved to Osaka, and he had a friend who brought a Super 8 camera mm. to school, and so they started making movies together. This just felt so similar to like when we met in Arizona. This yes. was like a life change. Yes, we moved. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Like it was like a new environment. I, I didn't like have any friends there, yeah. and we all bonded over like movie making. Making movies, yeah. Um, so they would make these movies, and they would try to charge like their fellow schoolmates, 50 yen to watch them. So it's like 50 cents, but still. <laughs> but the idea back was. Back then, yeah, the a couple bucks. You know? The idea was that they would use that money to go buy another movie so they to could go continue studying more. And mm. more movies. But like he said, I they see. never ended up making enough mo money to even buy one movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> but they were trying. They were trying they were to like trying. charge people for these movies that they made. That's funny. He tells another funny story about um, there's this, this film he wanted to make about. Uh, like some Japanese uh, school children who survived a plane crash on an island. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed to be um, uh, kind of this survival sort of like scenario or whatever. Well, uh, of kids he, though? Yes. Mm -hmm. he, he convinced his parents to fund this trip. <laughs> and he and his friends all go there. And they spend yeah. the first three of the four days just like swimming and messing around and not oh, making the movie. Man. And then on the last day, they're like, oh crap, we don't have time to make the movie that we wanted to make. Yeah. So he turned it into a like a like a horror, like zombie thing okay. instead. <laughs> and he never showed his parents the movie. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's funny. It's funny stories. Um, wow. But again, the, the family ends up moving to, uh, I think it's Hyogo in the, the Kansai region. I don't know about where that is. Uh, and then his father died when he was 13. But yeah, yeah like that lower kind of. Oh, so that's more like closer to where Kobe is. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So uh, this quote about his father, right? I was just 13 when he died. It was hard and lonely, but in a way, it strengthened my resolve to become a filmmaker. I could see that as it being like, that was my connection with my dad. When he passed, it was yeah. like, now I really wanted to, you know, yes. make it. Yeah, yeah. Says I desperately wanted to make films professionally. It was so difficult, though. There were no film schools near where I lived, and beyond mm -hmm. that, the budgets for Japanese films at that time were very low. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't think I'd be able to make that the kind of films that I was interested in. That's pretty much how I came to work in games, I guess. So he went to study economics in college, and he would write novels in his free time. 
Yes. Um, and and he would submit the novels yeah. to like different magazines and story and but they would always tell him that his novels were too long. <laughs> his like your story's too you know convoluted and big you know like yeah. condense it down and he couldn't do it. Yeah. He says even th this pursuit was related to film as I wanted to win awards for my novels and thought if that happened perhaps I would get the it chance would, to make a movie <laughs> out of the film or out of it's the like novel. exactly like the approach I was taking too I wanted to write a novel so that it could so be, that you could make a movie make a movie out of, of it, it later or yeah. you know, a series of it later uh, but I had no friends that were interested in cinema nobody to encourage me in that career it was around that time that I saw Nintendo's Famicom for the first time immediately it struck me that this might be another route into making film like experiences so this is his whole philosophy as a game designer, right? His, mm -hmm. his, his games are very cinematic. Oh, very, yeah. To the point of where they're almost more movie than game. Yeah, yeah, especially <laughs> in the later ones. The cutscenes yes. are just like really, really, really stupidly long. long. Yeah. Because he just wanted to make movies. But the idea is he wanted to take this medium and make them film-like experiences, yeah, yeah. right? It's like you're participating in a movie kind of a thing. Really similar, actually, to the story of Yasumi Matsuno, right? He yeah. wanted to be a film director. A lot of similarities. And it's funny that Matsuna was so inspired by Metal Gear Solid mm. that it they they kind of changed the direction for how they made Vagrant Story. I that one of my notes is yeah. how Vagrant Story is very similar to yeah. Metal Gear Solid. Mm -hmm. Very, very similar. They were very inspired by Metal yeah. Gear Solid. So, you know, there were a lot of I think there were a lot of artists in Japan who were not necessarily making it in the field they wanted to go into, yeah. but then gaming sort of provided this new medium yeah, where yeah, a lot so. of these dudes took off. Yeah. Um, and he, he talks about that too, so. Um, you know, right away I thought games could become something important in the future. That's what swayed my decision. I wouldn't describe it as settling so much as working with what was in front of me. And while it's true that I entered the games industry specifically because I couldn't find a way into movies, I soon fell in love with games. It's so different to film. It's interactive and you need to understand people in a different sort of way. Mm -hmm. I soon fell in love with the art of making games. But at the time, at the same time, I do still harbor the ambition to make a film in the future as well. And has that ever happened? Yeah, I don't think he's made a movie to this day. Let me like. Make I mean, he's sure working about with that. like Guillermo del Toro, and like right. he's working with the big movie makers. I know, but For, he isn't making movies. I, he, I, that's a very good question. I, I would assume that he could. He, at this point, there's no doubt yeah. that he should be able to make a movie if he wants to. Yes, but I don't know. Maybe that has changed since then. Yeah, maybe he's not. When is that interested. interview that you're reading? Do you know when that interview was given? Um. I'd have to open up the source again because okay. I just copied the. the it quote, wasn't for Metal Gear Solid, right? Or was it like? No, it was afterwards. Later? It, it was probably would have been like mid two thousands. Because the craziest Metal Gear Solid came out twenty five years ago. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Or twenty four years ago, unbelievable. It's it's crazy. Yeah, dude. So long ago. Um. Yeah. So career. I don't think I don't see anything here about a movie. Yeah, I don't think he's ever made a movie. But his games, huh. I mean, the, just take the cutscenes in them, right? They're basically just really long movies. Yeah, I know. It's, he's basically making CG films. Anyway. Okay, so um, he also goes on to say, there are many people joining the industry at the time who wanted to make films, to be directors or to write comic books, but for whatever reason hadn't been able to make it. Some were in a band and had released a record, but it hadn't sold well. Others were struggling artists who wanted their own manga series. The industry was full of dropouts, 
people who felt like games offered them another chance. Hmm. I met many people in that same situation. We bonded together through, uh, we bonded together through that same, through that in some sense. But there wasn't a negative spirit with it at all. At Konami, there was this feeling amongst us all that games were somehow important to the future. We believed in the future of the medium and that drove us to create the best possible work. So, really cool. Um, he also goes on to talk about why he settled with Konami. Because his decision to want to go into games would, was socially frowned upon. Oh yeah, um, for sure. By all his peers at school, by his teachers. His, I wonder how his dad would have felt. Yeah, his mom supported him. Oh good, good. So his, yeah. his, his dad I, I probably would have I assume his dad would have as well. Yeah. They were the only people, or she was the only person he, I would assume would have been the only two people who would have. Yeah. All his friends, all his, everybody else <laughs> yeah. was like, this is stupid, like please don't do this. His professors in college, don't do this. Is and um, he, he talked about how he would lie about what he did. He would say he worked at some oh, business really? firm or something. Instead just because of... it was embarrassing to admit I work on video games <laughs> in Japan at the time. Um, Man. So, uh, due to this, he, he talks about the reason he settled at Konami. I began looking for a company to work for and settled on Konami, not because of the type of games they were making at the time, but rather because they were listed on the stock exchange. <laughs> oh my gosh, really? <laughs> so that it was a reputable company right. because that's funny. They were the only games company to be listed at the time. Not even Nintendo had that accolade. And was this 86? 80... Probably 85, 86, 85. somewhere around there. Oh, wow. um, I guess it was a status thing, but I thought yeah. working for a company like that might help people to view my vocation in more of a positive light. Well, Konami made a bunch of the arcades and stuff, I think. Yes. So they had been around I mean, for me mechanical arcade hits. Yeah, know, like, yeah. Uh, uh, like pinball and stuff. Duck Hunt, uh, the original oh, Duck those, Hunt, which was like, you know, you have mechanical birds flying and nice. stuff like that, right? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, right from the start, I believed I was creating art. I felt like the world was waiting to see what video games could be, what they could become. It was a huge uh, incentive to do my best and to show them. So, that's a little bit about the background of Hideo Kojima and kind of his approach and, and why his games feel the way they do. They're very, very much inspired by the movies he grew up watching. The Great Escape. Yes. Stuff from the 70s and 80s. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Escape from New York. New York, yeah. Rambo. Rambo. Yeah. Action movies with Mel Gibson, like yep. buddy cop dramas. Yes. Uh, things like that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, the TV and the movies he grew up watching, 70s and early 80s, are huge inspirations. Maybe some people might say a little more than just an inspiration or homage. <laughs> in, in the case of Snake, I mean, Snake is basically just Snake Plissken from Escape from New York. It's yeah, like the yeah. same guy. Yeah. Same hair, same design, same attitude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you've watched Escape from New York, he's solid Snake. They're like the same guy. They're the same person. <laughs> in, in later, Versions of Metal Gear, does Snake lose an eye? Um, so. I feel like I have an image of Snake. By Big Boss. Oh, he's the one that didn't have the eye. Yes. So, okay. yeah. So, anytime you see the guy with the eye patch, that's actually Big Boss. That's Big Boss. Yeah. Um, and even in later Metal Gears, he never I don't has think so. an eye patch. Okay. I don't think so. Because Metal Gear 5 is yeah. Big Boss, Metal Gear Solid 3 is Big uh. Boss. Metal Gear Solid is Snake, Solid Snake. Metal Gear 
2, Metal Gear Solid 2 is Solid so Snake. So they look similar. Yes. But one... Metal Gear Solid 4 I is see. the old Solid Snake. Yes. Okay, that's what I've seen. When he has that, like, genetic aging disorder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Metal Gear 1 and 2 are Solid Snake. Cool. So, okay. oh, Peace Walker. Peace Walker is Big Boss. So, like, they switch uh, between the, like, 70s, 60s, 70s time period with yeah. Big Boss and then, like, the current timeline with Solid Snake in between mm. these games all the time. Okay. Hmm. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what Metal Gear is as a series. So it's a, I had never heard this before, a techno-thriller stealth game. <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? So what a techno-thriller is, is a hybrid genre that draws from like science fiction, spy fiction, war novels, okay. action movies. But technology. The, the, the important piece here is that it like disproportionately um, focuses on like technical details hmm. of the subject matter, whether that's you know uh, military technology, yeah. things like that as like supporting details for the world. It's very, very focused. <clears throat> like the only real comparison probably is hard science fiction, where it's like, hmm. you know, they describe how their warp engines work. And yeah. things like that. It's like very, very technical, technical, right? So the inner workings of the technology, mechanics. So it all has. Uh, it's all based in like real world, yeah. technical explanation. Or right? like the various disciplines of espionage or martial arts or yeah, the yeah. politics. Yeah. Like all of that stuff is explained in really excruciating detail yeah, yeah. in techno thrillers, mm. which is where the word tech comes from. It's like the technicalities, the okay, cool. the technology, right? Um, and the plots are often sort of, um, they revolve around those particulars uh, in, in terms of how they're exploring their themes and things like that. So anyone gotcha. who's played Metal Gear will know, like, and, and you, we were even talking about this on, on the way over, um, they, they did a ton of research for, oh, their, yeah. for their like terminology, mm -hmm. for like the way weapons are described. Yeah, and the way that they work and the tactics employed. and Yeah. Yeah, and and they had advisors from yeah, yeah. weapon experts to actual SWAT team guys mm -hmm. who like came in and like talked to them about all those. And yeah. they would even go out into the woods nearby the office and they would do like simulation, like war simulation sort of games and things like that. Yeah. So that they would all, you know, fun. understand like that world when cool. they were making the game. So it's 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 very, very technical, Metal Gear is, in that sense. So yeah. if you don't like listening to a lot of techno babble and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. like some of this might grind on you a little bit, but Metal Gear is very focused on those things. In a way that really works though, um, he has a quote where he says like, and, and I, I took this down particularly because we talked about this a little bit in the Final Fantasy VIII podcast, yeah. where uh, he said something like, if you can't convince your players that this world is real, then what's the point of making the game? Yeah, I saw that quote. Yeah, if it yeah. does, if the world doesn't feel real, then there's no point. Right? Yeah. Um, and so because of that, he would, uh, there, he was very attentive to technical details, yeah. and like people's desks all needed to look different. They, right. He didn't like having stock stuff yep. that was done because that's not how the real world looks. Right. All yeah. like, the, yeah, the in-game desks yeah. are designed They have different pages and yeah. it's almost like they created a little persona for who would have sat at that desk right. and then they dressed it all up and then did the same thing for the next one. Right. And then of course the purpose of all that is to build a world that feels very convincing and believable, right? Mm -hmm. Now, 
in the world of <laughs> Metal Gear, you have these special forces people with like magical powers and things yes. like that, right? It very quickly becomes <laughs> apparent that this is like not like how the real world works, but it's still got the the technical right. stuff that's part of the real world, but then it's like, you know, telekinesis and invisibility and all this crazy stuff. Right. Yeah. So like it's not realistic. Not at all. Don't <laughs> don't mistake this for any claim that Metal Gear Solid is a realistic right. sort of like uh, military spy thriller. Yeah, it's not at all. It's not even. It's close. got a very absurd style to it. But yeah. the point is that in his, his approach to this was that in focusing on all those details and trying to get that part of it right, mm. you will still believe the world is real even yeah. with the absurd elements in it. You know, it also helps his messaging and some of the thematic parts of the game, having that real world stuff inside of it as well. Yeah. So you'll deal with some absurd situation, but then they'll suck you right back into the realistic. Like they'll reference all sorts of like CIA former projects mm -hmm. and things. They talk about, there's a character here who is from the Watergate scandal. Like right. he, he's it's a character in the yeah. game. And it's like, it's so funny. And then they bring in all of this stuff that like they talk about J. Edgar Hoover and, and mm -hmm. like it's fascinating stuff. They go through the history, it's all technical. You actually will learn things playing this game. Right. Because they're talking about actual history. And then it works into some of the, what would you call it? The uh, peace promoting themes that Hideo Kojima is trying to insert into right. the game, right? Like denuclearization and things yes, like that. Right. Um, and that works because he's giving you real information, but yeah. he's packaging it up in this you know, strange kind of way that makes the game more fun, but it's still believable anyway. It's like it, Psycho, it works for Psycho Mantis too. tells you this stuff. Yes. <laughs> Instead of like yes. a realistic character. But, but what's funny, then they show you, because it sounds, and whenever, every time something sounds a little too far-fetched, they show you actual footage. Yeah. Like real footage, not video game footage. Like yeah. they put actual footage, and you can see of like hydrogen bombs blowing up and right. stuff. And it's like, anyways, it just makes it feel more real. And then they dip you back into the fantasy place. But right. anyways, it's just a fun way to kind of expose yourself to some of this stuff. Yeah. And also, through playing this game, I realized it is unbelievable how much Japanese people can learn about the corruption of the American government mm -hmm. through playing a game like Metal Gear, mm -hmm. but or Metal Gear Solid. But I know nothing about how their governments work. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like... They can like, you know, poke and prod and expose our government and everyone knows how horrible it works. But then we, I don't like, I'm sure other other countries do that stuff too, you know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but because we're like, you know, the big it's, one with all the yeah. funding, it's like, oh, and then they use all this technical stuff and names and all this stuff where it's like the specifically singling out yes. one government. Yes. And it's amazing how much that even normal people in America don't know that Japanese people do know about the American government. Right. It's pretty funny. I think this is in large part because America has been, since the Cold War, like the world's sort of like premier superpower. Yes. Right? And yes. Yeah, yeah. even during the Cold War, it was the Soviet Union Yeah. America. So when the when America does weird experiments, it kind of affects everybody. Right. Whereas if you know, Singapore has some secret program, it's like, yeah, well. Right. So what? It, 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 actually reminds me a little bit about how the church in fantasy RPGs is always evil, right? Oh, sure. Particularly in Japanese RPGs. It's like, that's just an easy target. Yeah, yeah. One that everyone can relate to. Right. America being yes. what they do affects everybody and they, it, right. the corruption affects everybody in the world. Right. It's not just them, it's everyone. So, 
you know, in, in basically all of the Metal Gear series, but in a lot of uh, spy thrillers and things like that, it's, it's, it's convincing and believable, but also very true to life that what America is doing is going to have a ripple effect right. that, that affects a, like a ton of people. And, and using a video game as opposed to a documentary or a movie, you know, yeah. to kind of, you know, sneak in that information to the youth. <laughs> yeah. It's just fascinating, you know. I just, I, I don't think I've ever really seen it done. Right. At least not to that effect, and especially not that early on. This is back in the 90s. Right. So the Metal Gear plots, uh, they typically, they're, they're pretty similar, but they typically center on like a few key characters. Yeah. You have um, Solid Snake, who's our main character in this game. You have Big Boss, who Big we'll Boss. talk yeah, a yeah. lot about. And then uh, Raiden, or Raiden, I think oh, is, yeah. is how it's pronounced. Um, and these are, you know, special forces operatives who are like top of the line, like most elite in the yeah. world types, right? And uh, they're assigned in each game to sort of find and disable or destroy uh, a super weapon called Metal Gear, Metal Gear yeah. which is a bipedal tank yeah. that can launch nuclear weapons. So the idea is that it can walk over like any type of terrain, right. whereas a tank wouldn't be able to go over a mountain. Metal Gear could do that. Yeah. And it can go position itself and launch nukes from anywhere in the world. That's basically what Metal Gear is, like boils down to yeah. its simplest form is you gotta find Metal Gear and stop it. Yeah. And the bad guys are trying to build another Metal Gear. Yes. <laughs> and and they usually kidnap some scientist or someone uh, to help course. them do that. And then you go yeah. in to save the scientist dude and stop Metal Gear and then get extracted. That's basically what Metal Gear games are. That's like the yeah. core of their identity, right? So, uh, to set some expectations, if you have not played Metal Gear before. And if you haven't seen our podcast before, I guess I forgot to mention this at the beginning. Oh, right. I try to mention this at the beginning of every new series we do. Yeah, yeah. We are going to approach this as if, well, knowing that some of the viewers have not played this game before. So mm -hmm. we're not going to spoil events before they happen. So you'll be able right. to play through the section that we assign for each week without the fear that in that episode we will spoil later game events. Yeah, we don't do that. Watch out for the comments, because in the comments, people will spoil things for you. Yes. So don't read the comments if you haven't played the game before. Um, but we will not be talking about something that hasn't come up yet. So some people will be like, oh, you missed this detail. Why didn't you talk about this? It's because we're saving it for when it's revealed yes. in-game. Then we can not yeah. spoil it for people who haven't played the game. And before. it's in part because we are analyzing the story. And part of analyzing the story is analyzing the order in which events are revealed. Yeah. Right? Yes. And we analyze it, and it doesn't matter what happens later. We're doing it as things happen. Yes. And we're analyzing it within that context. Right. And without fail, in every single series we do, someone comes in the comments and says something snarky about, yeah. you missed this point or whatever. People explain to them they're not spoiling it, and they say, everyone watching this has played the game before. No one's going to watch a, yeah. whatever part series wow. without having played the game before. I'm telling you, you are wrong. Yes. I get comments all the time yeah. from people who are playing these games for the first With time. With us while we're doing the podcast. And it's a yep. lot. It's not like five yeah. people. It's, and it's like hundreds of people. Well, I would assume that, because I more or less did this for Xenogears, <laughs> yeah. it is a lot of fun to do it that way as well. Yes. To, to be blind and to kind of play it with us every week. So This was your first time playing Metal Gear Solid, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I have now completed the game now, but yeah, this is the first time I played it. So, you know. Just know you're wrong if that's your attitude about it. <laughs> there are lots of people playing this for the first time. So yes. I want to set some expectations for people who have not played Metal Gear Solid and this is their first time playing it. Yeah. 
Um, this is a series that is known, uh, particularly even with just the first Metal Gear back in 1987, for popularizing and sort of creating the stealth genre. Yeah. It's sort of, there wasn't games like this at the mm. time. There wasn't like a stealth genre in, in the 80s. <laughs> um, it was all just like shooters and yeah. platforms. And, uh, yeah. A lot of shooters, a lot of action shooters, things like that. Yeah. So it's known for having done that, for popularizing the stealth genre, creating it in a big sense. It's also known for its ungodly long cutscenes, <laughs> yes. uh, which yes. we touched on a little bit, which tell this extremely intricate, i.e. horrifically convoluted storyline <laughs> <laughs> that sort of weaves in these complex political and social themes. Yes. That's, that's what he's really trying to do with this. He's trying to tell a story. It's usually very politically driven. Um, like you said, uh, sort of unveiling corruption in governments. Yep, yep, yep. Um, uh, you know, hypocrisy. Yeah. That sort of thing. And and um, just also just kind of new sciency stuff. Yes. Like there's a there's a bit in this game about the sequencing of the human genome. Right. Right. Um, and I think that happened around. I think it was the year 2000 when the human genome was fully sequenced. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and so that was technically after the game came out. Yeah. But it was something people were talking about. And people were all right. excited about. What does it mean once we have the full sequence totally done? What can we do then? You know. And yeah. he's kind of speculating in this game about the social and political ramifications of that right. in the future. But it's also important to note that um, Metal Gear Solid takes place in I think the year 2005. Yeah. So it's after the yes. sequencing of the genome. First of all. Uh, but it's kind of in the future, so he's pushing things out. So you think 1998, but um, you should think a little bit ahead because he does some science fiction-y, yeah, future-y type like, stuff. I think Metal Gear, the first game, takes it was place in like 1995. Something like that, yeah. in the 90s. So like it's in the 90s leading up into yeah. the 2000s is the time period yeah. that this is taking place in. Yeah, each game he makes, he keeps pushing it forward <laughs> 10 years <laughs> from bit. whenever the game came out. you know, And that gives him some leeway to do some extra well, stuff that... That we don't do, you know, in our yeah. current day, you know. And he does go back into the Cold War often for oh, the okay. big boss storyline. Oh, that's so right. That's the, right. You know, 1970s and things like that. So we kind of yeah. wheeze back and forth between those two timelines. Mm. Um, but anyways, he sort of accomplishes this exploration of these themes we're talking about uh, with this like sharp cutting back and forth between this dark, heavy, serious tone mm -hmm. that you would expect from a spy thriller, right? Yeah. Something like uh, a Mission Impossible or James Bond. a James Bond, which was a yeah. huge source of inspiration oh, for me. I can tell. Um, I can. I'm going to talk about. That. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it then will like swing this totally other direction into yeah. this super absurd place that is just—it's almost like laughable and memeable. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very much so. Um, yes. And, and fourth wall breaking yes, they in break the, the humor wall that it uses, right? Multiple times. Yeah. So it's just like going back and forth like this. And I think that's what Kojima's known for. He's known yeah. for just being incredibly serious and he's both Weird. extremes. All at, at once. He's both <laughs> at crazy extremes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and somehow, at least for me, I think everyone's answer to this will be different, of course. Yeah. Somehow... It works. Yes. There, this is not the sort does. of thing I would generally think works. Mm -hmm. This sort of like yeah. going back and forth between these kinds of tones. Yeah. It, it, it would feel too abrupt to work for me in almost anything else. Somehow for Metal Gear Solid, it seems to work mm. for me. Um, yeah. I don't know how to explain it other than to say it's like super cool 
in a B yes. movie kind of way. In a B right? movie kind of, in a Sam Raimi type, yeah, right. yeah like 80s. Where yeah. you don't take it that seriously. Yes. But it's just kind of cool and it's fun to watch with your buddies. But yeah. occasionally it will dip into this philosophical philosophical yes. depth it does that. of something more highbrow. Something it doesn't seem to have any business doing, yeah. but it'll just like do that, and then it's just like you're like really locked into that, and then it uh -huh. goes back to being really silly again. Yes. And then it's just like, wait, how did that, how did I accept that? <laughs> I, I have a theory on this actually, and part of my theory for why it's acceptable when these changes happen is because of the voice acting. Yes, it's um, good. It's, it's really, good. Really it's good. very good. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the case of, um, yeah, it's inc it's a, it's it's for its time. It's possibly the best voice yes. acting I've ever heard. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> but Snake's voice is it's it's intense, man. It's very intense. It's so intense that uh, you you you're. I believe Snake's voice, particularly his voice, is the reason why you're willing to accept all of this. David stuff. Hater yes. is the name of the David voice actor. Hater. Yeah, <laughs> and it's because he he does this kind of exaggerated. Yeah. Hardcore Green Beret type of almost like um, Sylvester Stallone, yeah. not quite the New Jersey thing, but you know, yeah. really, really deep, exaggerating that voice. Like, oh, really? What? And I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing it right because only he can do it right. Yeah. And he does it so well to where you're almost, you're almost willing to accept a little strange. There's something strange about the way he talks. Mm. There's something weird about it. But it's it also cool. That feels like a B movie. Oh, it's very cool. <laughs> it's really cool. It's a cool but voice. But it's not like natural necessarily. No, but it's not just silly either. Yeah, right. It's like, it's bright. It's, so his voice is writing that balance mm -hmm. between too much and maybe too silly, too serious. Like he's, I don't know, but he's, he's, he's in the middle between too serious and too silly. Yeah. But not fully either. Yeah. And because of that, whenever it goes in different directions, you're, I, I believe that because of his voice, you're 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 willing to kind of go different places. Yeah. It kind of breaks your idea of where the middle is or should be, and you're willing to kind of follow him. Anyways, yeah. it's fascinating stuff. But all yeah. the other voice talent around is also just extremely good. Yeah, they're very very good. Uh, yeah, and like you said, particularly for the time, right? Oh, voice yeah, acting for the in 90s? video games. Yes, you go back to that time period. <laughs> any game that had voice acting in it, generally <laughs> it was so really bad. really freaking bad. So yeah. this was a. This was an anomaly in, yeah. in that sense, and uh, really sort of set the bar for like how engaging like video game voice acting could be, and how it could draw you into a character and into the world. Yep. So, um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the original Metal Gear. Okay. Um, it was released in 1987 during the Cold War, like the, at the tail end of it, right? So it it deals with like. The manipulation of soldiers by politicians. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, and and this idea is sort of countered by the concept of outer heaven, which is this. It's this like sort a country like, that they want to make. Yeah, it's like a it's like a base, but it's like a yeah. it's a country into itself. That's yes. Without a country without politics is the idea. It's without politics, and it it is a Spartan, like a Switzerland Spartan nation of mercenaries. Yes. That just kind of, but they just kind of go out. And they're right. not, they don't have the allegiances and right. it's just like mercenaries. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. And so, and it, anyways, by the time Metal Gear Solid, or sorry, Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake released, mm. which was in 1990, this was at the end of the Cold War, right? So it began to expand more on, you know, political intrigue, battle ethics, military history, yeah. the negative side effects of warfare and things like that. So, mm -hmm. like you were saying, the time period in which the, the game was released will 
I, it helps you identify kind of like what Kojima was thinking about. So yes, for Metal sure. Gear in 1987, sure. he's got Cold War in his mind. But he's yes. got genetic sequencing on his mind in 1990. Yes, because it was exciting and it was right. about to, right. they were almost ready. So you got to take those yeah. things into account when you're sort of trying to analyze the themes of these games. But um, And if anybody's curious about the human genome and whether, or maybe why that didn't lead to these massive <laughs> genetic breakthroughs, it may have in some certain ways, but not the way people thought. Yeah. It's in part because once we sequence the human genome, we realize we don't freaking understand <laughs> what any of it means. <laughs> and it, we used to think, oh, there's a gene for this, one gene that makes you tall. No, it's like 10,000 genes yes. all interacting with each other yes. in a complicated way yes. that makes you tall. Yes. It's not just one gene, yes. you know? Right. And so talking about genetically editing babies and stuff, and it's just like way more 22 years later, Later, and thinking it's it still not, yeah, it's not like what they thought it was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so like we're saying, Metal Gear released in 1987 for MSX home computers. Yeah. Um, there was also a heavily modified NES version uh, that some viewers, like we said, might have played like back in the day. Mm. But that port was done by a totally separate team. Yeah, Kojima yeah. was not involved in that version at all. So the stories are more or less the same. Um, though there's a different opening and ending. Uh, in the NES version, it's mechanically inferior. Um, it lacks any of the side-scrolling sections that oh, the MSX yeah. version has. Ah. Um, it and this is the weird, weirdest part. It completely removes the Metal Gear fight. What? Me Metal Gear, what? the namesake of the game, does not appear in Metal Gear NES. I wonder why, at they, all. Wonder why they did that. <laughs> I, I do not know. And huh. Right. Kojima has been on record of saying this game does not hold up to the standard that he would have had. Yeah. But he wasn't—he was not involved in it. it was well, totally he wasn't a huge name at the time. No. You know? um, it also has snake-like parachuting in rather than an underwater infiltration in the MSX version, ah, okay. which puts it, puts him in a totally different area right at the beginning. Ah. And so he talks about how in the NES version you start off where you're walking in, you have no weapon. And these yes. dogs just attack you immediately, and you yeah. die right away, and it's way too hard. And it's just like, why did they do that, you know? Anyway, so they're very different versions. There's, there's also a, a, a boss called Hind that they removed, and they replaced it with these twins characters. Puzzles were changed, items were removed, etc., etc. It's, it's a very inferior version of the game. Hmm. Um, I got a quote from Kojima here. He says, we spent a long time working on the animations that wouldn't have been possible on the Famicom. I would go so far as to say that had I been working in the Famicom department from the beginning, I probably wouldn't have come up with the idea for Metal Gear. Whoa. The features of the systems are so different, and the game concept wouldn't have passed Konami's internal processing, which required more mainstream, family-friendly titles for the Famicom. So mm. it was only because of its MSX uh, success that they decided to port it to NES, but had mm. he been in the NES department, it probably wouldn't have passed their internal procedure That's anyway. That's crazy, wow. So, luckily he was not working in the Famicom division. <laughs> yes. That, so we got Metal Gear. Um, he also took that project over from a, another senior associate. Mm. Um, and the project was originally intended to be this action game with like a, a heavy like military combat focus. But the MSX didn't allow, like the hardware limitations didn't allow a lot of sprites on the screen at the same time. Right. And it didn't have smooth scrolling like the mm, NES had, okay. or the Famicom had. So, he says, I remembered the film The Great Escape, and I thought this would be a good approach for something distinct. My first concept uh, for the game 
in which you were a prisoner of war and simply had to escape. If you were caught, you'd be brought back to the prison. The idea was for a non-combat game, but I had such a hard time convincing people. I had so many things going against me at the time. For one, uh, my first game had been canceled, which was Lost War. So Lost mm. War was the first game. They, they, I think they worked on it for six I months. Oh, yeah. Or Lost World, sorry. Um, okay. For six months, and then it was canceled. Oh, man. And he was seen as being too ambitious. He mm, himself was, course. this is, no, no, scrap, this is way too much. Yeah. Um, so he couldn't show like a bunch of bullets on the screen for this game they wanted to make. It's just that the, the screen would start to flash. Uh, a game I used to play that did this a lot on the NES was um, Tecmo Super Bowls. Oh, football yes, game. yes, I'm aware. They have, the characters would flash. You know, 22 <laughs> characters on the screen yes. and they, they would just blink yeah, all the time. Yeah, and then the they'd time. move. It, it, was, it would be hard to follow a yeah. character uh, and not tell whether exactly where, what direction they were going. With right. That. Yeah. That so was, he's having that, that same problem yeah, if you have funny. a bunch of bullets that you're shooting yes. on MSX hardware. So he's trying to convince them, mm. let's do this different type of game that's more yeah. stealth, and you're trying to escape from the bad guys, not fight them. You know, and it's that's so funny because you can tell that he has some what would you call it pacifist leanings right. in terms of like his general politics anyways. Right. So the fact that he was kind of pushing for a less right. combat kind of yes, game, I don't know, that's, yeah. that's fascinating. Right. So I hadn't released anything yet. Then I was working uh, in quite a large creative group, and I was the youngest. Finally, the type of game I wanted to make didn't exist at that time. The odds were stacked against me, and it was very hard to earn the trust of the team. There were a lot mm -hmm. of very popular war games at the time, which was why Konomi wanted him to make that. Yeah, yeah. He said, then I approached one of the... Um, <clears throat> Sorry, I lost my place. Then I approached one of the higher-ups in the company who must have seen something in me as he invited me to pitch my ideas for Metal Gear in front of everyone. Everyone in the team saw that it was a revolutionary idea, I think, and from then on, I had their support. So that's how I got changed from this war game into this um, stealth sort of game, right? It wasn't anymore about escaping prison, but it was about infiltrating and trying to avoid combat and sneak in, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so he says uh, about The Great Escape, right? I wanted to create a game that played like the movie with the character running away, escaping without a fight, trying to avoid being seen by the enemy. I wanted to do that, but I couldn't get approval for that concept alone. I had to add more features, which is how it became a stealth infiltration game versus an escape game, right? Gotcha. Um, trying to form a tension of hide-and-seek is what he says, was how he wanted the tension of the game to feel like, right? Hide and seek rather than fighting. Mm -hmm. um, so when Snake was discovered, the gameplay became almost a puzzle game like Pac-Man, he says, where Snake must avoid the guards like they were Pac-Man's ghosts. Oh, yeah. So you <laughs> so, start running away from him and yeah, going around. Yeah, right, exactly. So that was kind of his thought behind that. It was almost like a Pac-Man-like thing. Nice. Uh, a final innovation came with the addition of the in-game story, because there, as he says in quotes, there weren't any stories at that time in action games. And he thought that the hide and seek game needed to be justified with a story about why you're doing that. Mm -hmm. So he really wanted to work in like, a, like an involved storyline into that, at least for the time, right? Um, oh, so he then goes on to say, there were so many things I wanted to do to create in that first game. Um, there were so many things I wanted to throw in and I had no idea how long the process would take. Uh, you, could, you just couldn't fit it all in one game. I guess uh, what I couldn't do back then, I did in my PlayStation Metal Gear games. 
So oh, a lot yeah. of the ideas that he originally, that went, went into those. Probably with like the cameras and the, yeah. yeah, yeah. There was kind of a lot of things that ended up kind of being moved into later games, but. Hmm. But there were numerous Metal Gear, uh, I guess like mainstays that were introduced in that first game, including like getting your equipment on site. Right. Okay. In Metal Gear Solid, like Instead he doesn't have a gun it. when he starts. You have to go that's find cool, a gun. That's cool, actually. I think that's pretty yeah. cool. So like that was in the original Metal Gear. Um, using a transceiver to get mission updates. Yeah, you know, with like the 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 fourteen like, zero. Yes, the numbers that you dial into like the exact. Yeah. Um, what do you call that? Uh, frequency. Frequency. Yeah, yeah. To communicate. That was in the original as well. Um, and then uh, the series signature exclamation mark whenever Snake is spotted, right? That mm -hmm. was also in the original Metal Gear as well. Here's another interesting thing. What about the box? Was uh, that in the original? Hiding in the box? Oh, no. No? no. Okay. That came later. But um, this key art here, so this is, the, this is the box art for Metal Gear, right? Mm -hmm. And this is taken exactly from uh, 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 Terminator. Look at that. <laughs> they like basically great. traced it. Um, <laughs> now, he wasn't involved in that decision. Yeah. Kojima wasn't. But it's just funny how much he loved action movies from yeah, the 80s yeah. and 70s and stuff. All those themes and kind of found their way into his games. Yeah, like That's Snake, great. the appearance of Snake here is basically 100% based on, um, what is this character's name from Terminator? Is it John Connor? No. I haven't seen them in too long. Oh my long. gosh. There's uh, Sarah Connor, but I can't remember. This guy, Kyle Reese. Oh, Kyle, Kyle Reese. Reese. So he's basically, his key art on the box of the game was based exactly on this Kyle Reese portrait. Nice. Um, yeah, Kyle, I sort of just scrolled down. <laughs> Kyle Reese <laughs> right, is right there. there. Um, so anyway, uh, let's see here. So after the success of that game, Konami goes on to make a now non-canon sequel yeah. called Snake's Revenge yeah. that was not developed by Kojima at all. Mm. It was, was the, the same um, Famicom team that oh, did those the guys. port of, course. of Metal Gear. And they wanted yeah. to focus particularly on markets outside of Japan. Right. And so this game came to the NES, Snake's Revenge. Hmm. Not Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake, which is the real sequel to Metal Gear, but this Snake's Revenge game did come to, uh, to markets outside of Japan. Did it come to North America? Yes. Oh, no way. Um, but one of the designers on that game like met Kojima on a train. Yeah. They were riding the train together. And this is how he described this. Um, when, I was in this MS, uh, when I was in the MSX division, this one guy in the Famicom division developed Snake's Revenge without talking to me or anybody else. One day this guy and I hopped on a train, the Tokyo Transit system together. We were talking to each other and he says, by the way, I'm developing this game called Snake's Revenge, but I know it's not the authentic snake, so please create a snake game of your own. <laughs> like a <What>? sequel. <laughs> create a sequel. Good, 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 yes. <laughs> And that's when I decided to create Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake, which came out pretty quickly after Snake's Revenge. So he decided to after The guy told him guy. like, hey, the game I'm making is not like a real sequel to the game yeah, you made. Yeah. I want you to make another Please Snake Please make another game. one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I almost wonder if that guy was assigned to make that game or something that it was Probably, yeah. I mean, I would assume that since Konami, you know, probably gives them assignments. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> So he says, uh, Kojima says, on my way home I began to think about what that might look like. Without that encounter, I probably wouldn't have pursued a proper sequel and there might never have been a Metal Gear Solid. 
So this dude telling him, you gotta make yeah. a real sequel to Metal Gear, is what kept him kind of the thinking about the story. Slowly aligning, yeah. Uh, just some more quotes, interesting quotes from him. Because we're making a war game, Konami wanted the experience to be authentic. So every week mm. they paid for us to visit a forest in the mountains nearby. We would dress up a military uniform and play games there. It was a good time. <laughs> I referenced that a little earlier. Yeah, um, that's fun. He also, this is a, a little bit about his auteurship, right? Yeah. I would tell the programmers what I wanted to show on screen, when I wanted the dialogue to display or the music cue to sound, but they wouldn't do it how I wanted. <laughs> they would change it slightly to what they thought was best. Yeah. It was hugely frustrating making games at that time for me. I wanted to control everything. So after the second Metal Gear launched, I developed my own scripting engine and decided to work on adventure games so that I could have complete control over when the animation played or when the music triggered. That's when I developed Snatcher and Police Knots. Right, because uh, he, he kind of didn't make another Metal Gear game for a long time yeah, after, after a, the second one. Yeah, it came out like 1990, and yeah. then up to 94, he hadn't released a Metal Gear game. That's yeah. when Police Knots came out in 94. Um, it was my way to take creative control back from the programmers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's uh, so funny, man. Yeah. Because it's like you need those people to yes. make the game for you. Yes. But he was so particular. That's yep. so funny. So he goes on to work on other projects, like I said, Snatcher, that came out in 1988, and then Police Knots in 1994. Mm. Um, Police Knots was going to be released, or it was released, on the 3DO. Yeah, <clears throat> that's the craziest thing. Have you yeah. ever heard of this system before? Yes, but I had I never had actually not. looked into what its library was. Like, I had heard of it, but yeah. I hadn't actually, like, okay, what, what's on this thing? Yeah. What did the games look like? What was the controller like? But I had it's heard like of it. like a Sega the 3DO. controller, yeah, more it's, or less. It's one of those many failed home consoles <laughs> yes. between, you know, the, the early 80s and kind of the mid-90s. Um, it, it, I don't know why exactly it failed, though, because it had the backing of Panasonic, yeah. and it was started by the founder of EA, the mm. EA Games, yep. and it seemed like it had enough behind it to where it could have Been successful. shaken up the market, yeah. but, but it just, just didn't. didn't. Yeah, because Metal Gear Solid began development on that yeah. platform. Now, do you but, know the specs of it? It didn't run on discs, did it? I don't remember, or I don't know, I should say. Huh, interesting. But the 3DO was discontinued at some point, probably shortly after the release of, of Police Knots, actually. Yeah, yeah. Around 94 era. Because it just wasn't selling. No. And so, like, that kind of sucks for Police Knots. But yeah. it was really good for Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> yes, very good. <laughs> so they changed the platform to the PlayStation. The game was renamed with the word Solid, so Metal Gear Solid, which is derived from Snake's codename, Solid yeah, Snake. Yeah, Solid Snake. Um, and as it migrated over to 3D graphics, right. Uh, Kojima chose not to go with Metal Gear 3 in particular because uh, he felt the series wasn't that well known, particularly outside of Japan at the time, because yes. at least the games he made, Metal Gear, his version, MSX version, and Metal Gear 2 were never released outside of Japan. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and particularly in North America, right? Uh, those first two games, nobody had really right. any experience with. And he wanted to push this game yeah. into an international audience like, right. pretty well, yeah. Um, because of the difficulty at that time with controlling first-person games, they, yes. we didn't have twin sticks yet. Right, right. The, Playsta the original PlayStation didn't have sticks. Right. It just had a D-pad, right? It wasn't until the N64 yep. came out with its analog stick that they released a second version of the PlayStation with. controller with two sticks on it. Yeah, yeah, with this, yeah. Um, so anyways, 
they had D-pad, and they were trying to figure out how to control a first-person you know, game. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> Hideo Kojima said it gave him headaches. Yeah. Like, he couldn't do the first-person stuff. Nope. So they opted for this more 2D overhead angle, just yeah, like the yeah. previous Metal Gear games, but it was 3D graphics. Um, though you could occasionally switch into a first-person view to sort of survey the area and look around. I thought that was pretty cool, yeah, actually. things yeah. like that, right? Um, <clears throat> so... We kind of already touched on this, but the team was really you know, aiming for accuracy with its terminology. That's yeah. they brought in, uh, you know, weapons experts and things like that. To yeah, they trained with the SWAT team of Hun- Huntington Beach or something like that. Yeah, it seems yeah. like they Huntington came. Beach SWAT they team. came yeah. to America. I, I think so. To yes. to learn about the weapons and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. So they learned a lot about the tactics and all of that stuff. And I talked a little bit about Yoji Shinkawa, who um, is the art director. He designed all the character art and the mechs and things like yeah, that yeah. with Kojima's concepts, original concepts. Uh, we talked about him already. Um, we talked a little bit about Snake's appearance being inspired by Mel Gibson in the 1987 original. Uh, of course, uh, yeah. also um, the Terminator character, which I already forgot the name of again. What Kyle? Kyle Reese. Reese. <laughs> Thank you. There you go. I don't know why my brain can't hold on to that name right <laughs> now. Okay. So then Kurt Russell. <laughs> yes, Kurt Russell. So who was Snake Plissken. And then Jacques Conn, Van Damme, and even Christopher Walken. is kind of the more the direction they went for like this version of the character. Uh, in Solid, yeah. Which has stuck ever since. I had heard it was something along the lines of uh, they didn't want the overly body-built Arnold Schwarzenegger yes. and Sylvester Stallone. Right. They wanted more of like a, like a, a cut physique, but not just like overly bulky. Like and they figured Jean-Claude Van Damme was like the right, the, the perfect body shape. So they kind of patterned the body after him. And then his head, I had heard that his head was actually meant to look like Christopher Walken. Yes, which yeah. I don't see I don't know personally. if <laughs> I don't see it. Yeah. Maybe when Christopher Walken was young. Maybe. I in guess. The 60s. But I don't, <laughs> I don't see it. I don't see it personally. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let me look at this. Is this something worth talking about? Oh, this is part of the... So earlier I had mentioned there were certain things he wanted in the game that they had to save for later. One of those things was like interaction with objects in the environment, like uh, being able to hide bodies. Ah, yes. Um, Uh, I noticed like when you're splashing in the water, if you're running through water, they'll hear it. The enemies will hear it. And even your footprints in the snow. Right, they'll see the footprints. They'll see the footprints. footprints Yeah. Yeah. Um, He also talks about like hiding bodies in storage compartments or Mm. uh, a full orchestra right next to the player, he says, or essentially a system where the tempo and the texture of the music changes depending on what's happening. What you're doing. Um, Instead of switching to a pre-recorded track. That's hard to do, especially on the PS1. Right. So although those features weren't achieved in this Mm. game, they were implemented in the second. Metal Gear Solid 2, I should say. But uh, he also used Legos to build... Yes, the storyboards and the blocking. (laughs) To build, like, the environments, and then he would pick his camera angle, like, with the the Lego it designed. Dude, that's so genius. Well, (laughs) think about this, though. The 3D programs back then were... Probably not so easy yeah. to use, oh, right? Yeah, and, and everyone was just learning how to do it. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like to get it, an actual idea of what this thing will look like before you build it, it took them like months to build this stuff in 3D. Right. Nowadays, people do it so fast. But back then, it took a really long time. And so, the, yeah, they would build everything in Legos to make sure that, the, that via the camera placement, 
that you wouldn't be able to see snake from these angles and all yeah, that stuff, right. you know, wherever the surveillance was and mm. that everything would make sense before they went ahead and built it. And that's so smart. That's just yeah. genius yeah. to block everything in Legos first. I love yeah. that. And pick I love how creative angles. these guys are. It's, it's awesome. It's awesome reading about how they came up with stuff yeah. back then. It's so different from the way that the game industry works today, right? Oh, yeah. Way too different. Um, he also talks about, again, you mentioned this, uh, how he wanted the staff to be small. Like he wanted a small team to work yep, with, yep. right? Uh, he preferred to have a smaller team so that he could get to know everyone. He can get to know them, and also I feel like he has more control over a smaller yes, team. More and he can really them. tell people, hey, <laughs> do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Yeah. Whereas on a big team, it's like, oh, you have you to can't deal with micromanage you have, everyone no, that way. <laughs> you have to deal with team leaders, and then you're yes. you're expecting the team leaders to then go down to explain it properly, but it's like, yes. no, but you can't talk to all 100 people. It's a game know? of telephone yeah. versus just directly telling a guy, do this. I think yeah, you're right. that's funny. Anyways, getting to know everyone on the team and what they're working on and if anyone's unhappy or sick, and, you know. Yeah. Being able to manage people. It's easier to manage a small group than a large group. We yes. know this having worked yes. on various film projects. Yeah. Uh, I, we kind of got to the point where we, we kind of liked it to be as small a team as possible. Yeah. It's and just so much easier. Almost everything. Ourselves. So much easier that way. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. So, you know, I totally understand where he's coming from on that. Um, I could talk a little bit about the music. I think I'll save that for another time, okay. just to save on some time for now. But the music's really good in yeah. Metal Gear. Like I said, all the sound, the whole sound department, whether it's music or sound design, is just incredibly iconic. Yeah. For this game in particular, but for this whole series. It's just. Phenomenal. It's always so good. And well, I'll talk more about that when we actually get into the game. Okay, so let's do a quick summary of Metal Gear 1 and 2 so that okay. people who are playing Metal Gear Solid for the first time will be caught up on what's going on. Um, know that these summaries that I'm going to read are actually found in Metal Gear Solid. So yeah. in the start menu, you go up and you, there's an option to select where you can read through these like... Uh, they're almost like files on like what happened yeah. in these first two missions he went on in Metal Gear 1 and Metal Gear 2. Um, so Metal Gear 1 is pretty simple. It's not as complex narrative-wise as Metal Gear 2 is. Um, but 1995 takes place in South Africa. Um, Outer Heaven, which is this armed fortress nation, right? Yeah. Has been built by this legendary mercenary character who we don't know at the start of that game. Mm. There's this legendary mercenary who everyone like sort of reveres and fears in that world. He has established this fortress nation called Outer Heaven that is without politics and is meant yeah. to sort of like become the strongest military in the world and sort of it's sort of like a world domination, world takeover kind of thing. Yeah, we, yeah. we threaten with our, our, the threat of our weapon is so incredible that like yeah. it deters other nations from... So peace through strength. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's the idea of Outer Heaven, right? So the Western nations have found out that this weapon of mass destruction is being built there. It's capable of rewriting the, the history of war. <laughs> um, it, it's mm -hmm. under development there. So they, they call on their high-tech special forces unit, which is called Foxhound, yeah. to go and take care of this. The first guy they send in there, the first operative, is named Gray Fox. He's like their, he's like their best guy, right? Yeah. And he goes in and he gets kidnapped, or not kidnapped, but captured. Captured. 
He gets captured there, and his last transmission that he sends back to Foxhound is Metal Gear, and then like it's all it is. It's cut mm. off. So it's like, what's that? You know, what's what's Metal Gear? So the leader of this Foxhound unit, he they call him Big Boss. That's his Big like Boss. his code name. Yeah, and he sends in uh, a rookie uh, operative named codenamed Solid Snake, Solid our Snake. main character, right? Yeah, to go in and rescue Gray Fox if you can. Um, and find out what Metal Gear is. So he goes in, he finds Gray Fox, um, and learns from him that Metal Gear is this walking tank that can launch nukes. And that uh, they've got to take this thing out. Uh, they have to destroy it, right? So that becomes his, his next sort of like, um, we call it, uh, objective for the mm -hmm. mission is to destroy Metal Gear. Um, Okay, let me skip through. You, you end up meeting uh, this guy, Dr. Petrovich, um, who was like the guy who developed the weapon. He's, he's there. Um, also his daughter, I think her name is, what is her name? Let me skip down a little further. Dr. Petrovich, his daughter, Ellen. So uh, the chief engineer, Dr. Petrovich, his, his daughter, Ellen, before he'll tell you anything, you have to go rescue her and make sure that she's safe and things like that. Um, uh, so she was taken hostage. And so once you save her, then you come back and he tells you how to destroy Metal Gear. He, there's like a weakness underneath it or something like that. You destroy, blow it up from underneath or something mm, like okay. that. Um, but as you're going, on that pursuit to destroy Metal Gear, it seems like the enemies are always one step ahead of you, as if like they know what you're doing, like someone's leaking information to them. Yeah. They're always setting up these intricate traps that that like they shouldn't know where I'm going next, but they always seem to like be aware of what you're doing. And it's like really suspicious, right? So um, as this kind of escalates, you know, you fight a bunch of people along the way, bosses and things like that. Um, one of your guys, I think Schneider, he's like one of the people who's working with you. He gets, he falls in enemy hands. Uh, Snake himself is injured. Um, he's fighting against Outer Heaven's best mercenaries. Um, he goes to like the 100th floor basement. So this is like way freaking down. <laughs> uh, where Metal Gear is being developed. He ends up having a fight there with Metal Gear and destroying it. Um, and as he's escaping Outer Heaven, it's revealed to him that Foxhound's commander, Big Boss, was mm -hmm. actually the mercenary who established Outer Heaven in the first place. So Big Boss is actually the guy yeah. who's the villain of the story, and it's a big twist at the end. Of course. And you have a big fight with Big Boss at the end, and you escape and destroy Outer Heaven. And so like that's the story of the first game, right? And it's like, mm. you, you think you've killed Big Boss, but that's never the case in these games. <laughs> he comes back in game number two. Yeah. Um, so Metal Gear 2, how do I summarize this quickly? Because <laughs> we're kind of running out of time here. Um, kind of like we were saying, like, this was more focused on uh, the world's fuel source, like the world's running out of yeah. petroleum. And so there's this guy, Dr. Keo Marv, who invents something called Oilix, which is a microorganism that refines petroleum to produce a highly purified form of petroleum. So basically a new fuel source for the world. Yeah. Um, a new energy source. So everyone's you know, hopeful that this discovery is gonna like solve the energy crisis in the world. This is cutting into the late 90s at this point. 
Um, at the same time, the world has entered into a time of tension regarding this new algae, this oilix that oilix is made from. Um, so at that time, Dr. Marv gets abductive, uh, abducted and disappears, and the nations begin investigating like what happened to him. Uh, they find out he's been taken to a place called Zanzibar land. Zanzibar, yes. <laughs> you do hear about that in yeah. Metal Gear Solid. Right. So Zanzibar land was a democratic military regime that suddenly appeared in Central Asia in 1997. Um, and when their uprising took place, the CIS army formed around Russia and they sent in a suppressive unit immediately. And Zanzibar land resisted by gathering a band of mercenaries from nations around the world, fortifying most of its land. So it's a similar idea. It's like the new Outer Heaven and yeah, it's yeah. mercenaries that are running it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they capture Dr. Dr. Marv, kind of like Petrovich in the first game. Mm -hmm. And anyway, a very similar kind of setup. So they're sending Snake in there, but he's got a new, um, a new sort of like commander in the unit of Foxhound. This is uh, Roy Campbell, who is the guy who's leading you, uh, leading the operation in Metal Gear Solid. The Colonel. Right? The right. Colonel. Yes. Colonel Roy, yep. Roy, Roy Campbell. Um, okay, so the big twists in this game are that Dr. Petrovich is also there. <laughs> and you have to rescue him again, but it actually turns out that Petrovich is there engineering another Metal Gear, mm. but he's doing it willingly this time. But you don't oh, know that. Mm. Um, so Dr. Marv ends up getting killed in this game at a certain point, and it's like Petrovich is standing over his body, and it's like, oh no, Pe he's a scientist, he couldn't have done anything to save him. But then you get the uh, 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 a transmission right there, oh, Petrovich has actually been coming here willingly, and he's actually like a part of it, he's in on like it right or whatever, there. as you have to like fight Petrovich. Uh. <laughs> anyway. Uh, let's see. Gray Fox comes back and he's piloting Metal Gear in this. Oh, great. <laughs> of course. So Gray Fox is back. He fights against you in Metal Gear. Um, and then, of course, Big Boss is still alive. Um, Seems like a big theme in Metal Gear is like betrayal and then like understanding the motives of your enemies. Right. Like those two things kind of. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. So... Let me skip ahead a little bit here. Um, so Snake succeeds again in destroying Metal Gear. Uh, however, Gray Fox did not submit and challenge Snake to a final battle. <laughs> this is kind of funny. Uh, in the midst of a minefield, <laughs> Snake and Fox fought without any weapons. This is something that you will see a lot in this series as well. It comes well, down to like the final showdown. <laughs> and it's it's like, this is- It has to be an honorable This fight. is outside of politics. Yeah. This is outside of anything. Like forget all that. This is just a man-to-man -man battle. You yes. and me, a pure like- <laughs> And that's so 80s. That's so 80s action movie, dude. Yeah, and is. honestly, even in, in Asia, that would continue to be the case yeah. in a lot of Asian films into the 2000s as well. It, it Maybe yeah. there's a little bit of like samurai like a, duel like sort of honor, honor system yes. thing going on Even here. in Chinese movies they would do that. Yeah. It, it, and like Bruce Lee movies, this is back in the 70s, but they would often like... Hey, yeah, this, this, this is not about like the, um, the sides on which we're fighting for. We've dropped all that pretense. Yeah. This is about... Us as warriors on Me the battlefield. Me versus you, yeah, yeah. Like, who's the superior warrior? The pure warrior, like, yeah. honorary And it's dishonorable combat. to use a weapon, you know? You've got to really just, like, <laughs> duke it out one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, you will see this return 
in, this actually happens at the end of almost every Metal Gear game, now that I think about it. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, Big Boss, or, or, or sorry, Naked Snake against Boss at the end of Metal Gear Solid 3. Yeah. Um, and then Ocelot and Solid Snake at the end of Metal Gear Solid 4. It just devolves into a fist fight, basically, at the very end. They're just punching the fetch out of each other for like three hours. <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, anyway, so it says, a fist-to-fist -fist duel involving no hatred or murderous intent. Right. During the, this moment of purity, ah, the two were great. bound by f uh, forces transcending words and emotions. Wow, it's of course, <laughs> of course, of course. I cannot read this without no, laughing. This sounds like North Korean propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're watching North Korea's propaganda's channel. It's it's so funny. It's it, it sounds so anime to me. Yeah, yeah, um, great. Snake won the tough but pure battle against Gray Fox. However, there was still someone else. Snake had to fight Big Boss. Just like four years ago at Outer Heaven, Big Boss was waiting for Snake. Uh, this is a quote from Big Boss from the game, I think. One who has experienced the tension of battle can never leave the battlefield. I'm the one giving you something to live for, and that is war. Snake was infuriated at the arrogant Big Boss. There is only one battle I have to fight, to free myself from you, to shatter the nightmare. Big Boss, I will kill you. With the structural plan of Oilix, Snake, and uh, Hori escaped from Zanzibar land uh, on a rescue helicopter. Snake once again saved the world. However, there was no smile on his face. Big Boss's last words kept ringing in his head. Whoever wins, our battle does not end. The loser is freed from battle, uh, the battlefield. The winner must remain there, and the survivor must live his life as a warrior until he dies. Snake then disappears into the white lands of Alaska. So... That kind of leads us up to where Metal Gear Solid will begin. I think we're going to stop here. I was originally planning okay. on going over the briefing part, but I think we're going to do that next time. But the point is, is that where we're going to pick up next time is Snake is being brought in to Foxhound again. Campbell yeah. is, I don't know, is it Foxhound or? He, anyway, no, Foxhound is disavowed, I think, at this point, because you fight the Foxhound dudes yeah. throughout the game. Anyway, That's true. Roy Campbell is bringing him back yeah. in for another mission. So he's like being abducted from wherever he was in Alaska and like mm -hmm. forcibly brought back in to listen to Campbell's pitch <laughs> yes. on how he needs him to for this mission or whatever. <laughs> and then he's, <coughs> I love how he's injected with the nanomachines. Yeah, and he tries yeah. to ask beforehand like, what, what is this? What is this you're injecting me yeah. with? Oh, are you afraid of needles or something? <laughs> they don't even tell him what to do. I know. That's we'll talk all about that next time. But... Um, that gets us up to kind of where, where we'll pick up. So that's the story so far leading up to Metal Gear Solid. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this first episode of background history on this game and the creators and the story. Yep. I will put in the pinned comment where to play up to. Um, like we said, it's a very short game. You could probably just beat it just in a weekend. You I mean, probably could. It's it's think? like it's like eight to ten hours tops. It's like not it gonna is. take that long. Although to beat. it is on two separate discs. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to think. The the story part is is back end loaded. Yes. Know. Right. Maybe just play through disc one. I will try to figure that out and kind of okay. like how are we gonna you know evenly sort of distribute the, okay. the rest of these episodes. So just look for the pinned comment. You'll know where to play up to. But you might as well just try to play as far as you can. And yeah. maybe you can beat the game. Because it's pretty short. It is short. All right, everybody. Thanks for watching. See you next time.